Today's episode is brought to you by Roger Deakin's Waterlog, a masterpiece of nature writing in which Deakin embarks from his home in Suffolk to swim Britain, the seas, rivers, lakes, ponds, pools, streams, locks, moats, and quarries, and in the process offers enchanting descriptions of natural landscapes and a deep well of humanity, boundless humor, and unbridled joy. Susan Casey says, Waterlog is an adventure, a meditation, a celebration of wild swimming, a delight. In this book, Roger Deakin has captured the magic of the liquid world. With a new introduction by Bonnie Tsoi and a new afterword by Robert McFarlane, Waterlog is out on May 25th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I'm unusually excited to share today's conversation between Portland and Paris with Moroccan writer Abdella Taya, who is as wonderful in the real world as his books are to read. For people who listen to the show regularly, you know I take a moment before we begin to talk about some of the many reasons why you might consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter, whether it be the resource-rich emails that point you to further things to explore after the conversation, the best things I discovered in preparing for it, and the most interesting things that either Abdella and I refer to during it, or collectible items from writers from Nikki Finney, Ricky Ducournay, and Ursula Le Guin, among many others. But I particularly want to highlight the bonus audio archive today, because today's addition to it continues a tradition of doing a long-form conversation with the translator if a book being discussed is in translation. And Emma Ramadan is the winner of the 2021 Penn Translation Award for today's book. And we talk about why she is attracted to Abdullah Taya's work, what challenges there are in translating it, and Abdullah himself asks Emma a question. But the conversation also goes into many other things, stereotyping and sexism within the translation industry, questions of representation and scarcity, about the appeals of co-translating, about the benefits of more out-of-the-box translation experiments, and a particular interest of Emma's, the relationship of translation to the body and the role of the translator's body in translation. So if you're interested in finding out about how to subscribe to the Bonus Audio Archive, or to look through the many different potential rewards and gifts available to supporters, or perhaps you simply want to become a supporter to join the community of people who are not only receiving a backstage look at each episode coming together, but also to participate in shaping the future of the show, of who we invite next as future guests. Head over to patreon.com slash between the covers and check it all out. And now for today's episode with Abdella Taya. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. Uh. 
you know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Moroccan writer and filmmaker Abdel Ataya. Despite being born inside the Rabat Public Library, where Ataya's father was a janitor and where his family lived until he was two, Ataya does not connect his own writing or his journey toward becoming a writer to other books or to a literary pedigree, but rather to Saleh, the neighborhood outside of Rabat where he grew up, and to the three-room house where he, his parents, and his eight siblings lived. Abdelataya has lived in Paris for the past 20 years, but it was films, not books, that fueled his desire to go to France, to live under the same skies as French film star Isabella Gianni. It was Egyptian movies and American westerns that he would see on TV that pushed him to study French in Morocco to study French literature as part of that, so that he could ultimately study film in Paris. And yet today, Abdel Ataya is best known for his writing, for his autobiographical novels and stories, and for being the first openly gay Moroccan writer, coming out in the Moroccan magazine Telkel, and then publishing an open letter in Morocco titled Homosexuality Explained to My Mother. Fortunately for us, many of his books have been translated into English. These include the story collection Another Morocco and the novels Salvation Army and An Arab Melancholia, all published by Semiotext, and the novel Infidels, published by Seven Stories Press. In 2010, Taya won the French literary award Le Prix de Flore for his book Le Jour de Roi, and in 2014, Taya made his directorial debut with the film adaptation of his novel Salvation Army, which won the jury awards of Festival Premier Plan d'Angers and Festival Tous Écrans de Genève, and the best feature film at the Durban International Film Festival in South Africa. This film is also widely considered to have given Arab cinema its first gay protagonist. Taya has also published two photo books, Morocco, 1900-1960, with Frédéric Mitterrand, and Egypt, The Martyrs of the Revolution, with Mahmoud Farag and Denis Dailleux. He's also the editor of the anthology Letters to a Young Moroccan. Abdel Ataya is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his latest novel, From Seven Stories Press, translated by Emma Ramadan, A Country for Dying. The winner of the 2021 Penn Translation Prize. Viet Thanh Nguyen says the following of Abdel Ataya's latest book. A Country for Dying is a knife of a novel, short, sharp, and jagged. Abdel Ataya ruthlessly uses that knife to cut away sentimental notions of love, romance, family, and nation. He exposes how colonization 
has shaped sexual desire, expression, and exploitation, and leaves us with a memorable, powerful work. Rien Sassin for the Paris Review says, A Country for Dying depicts a Paris distinct from the stuff of Anglophone fantasies. Taya, who came out as gay in Morocco, where homosexuality is illegal in 2006, poignantly portrays the lives of immigrants in a city and country that is frequently hostile to them and openly questions France's perception of itself and its immigration policies. Finally, Edmund White says, Abdelatiya dramatizes the reality of Zahira and Zanuba, Moroccan prostitutes in Paris, at sea in the stormy straits between the sexes and nationalities, estranged from their families, but absorbed by their loves and fantasies. This is a cri de coeur and a cri de corps, heart and body crying in the lonely city. Welcome to Between the Covers, Abdella Taya. Thank you very much for inviting me. I hope my English is good enough for you to understand what I will be saying. Yes, your, your English is quite fantastic. I've listened to you speak quite a bit. Um, I wanted to start with talking about voice as a writer in relationship to self and in relationship to story. But before we do, I think it would be good for people to hear the origin story or one of the origin stories for this book about when you first arrived in Paris full of romantic ideas of what Paris could be and saw someone on the ground outside of the bank. Could, could you orient the listeners to how that became one way this book came into being? Uh, I, I arrived here in France, in Paris, in 1999. And of course, I was only 25, 26 years old, and I was totally in love still with all the mythical uh, cultural um, things about France, meaning the Museum of Le Louvre, uh, the old French movie theaters, and Isabella Jenny and François Truffaut, and all these people that are uh, icons and more than icons for French uh, and for France. And but as soon as I was here, just uh, to be in this reality called France, you see, you see immediately the difference. At the same time, I was still totally enamored and in love with everything that is France. But at the same time, I saw so many people in the streets, in the subways, uh, looking like me, like, meaning Arabs, Muslims, Africans, Black people, but at the same time, marginalized while being in the center of France, the center of Paris. And I remember very clearly that I was in the neighborhood of Barbès, which is one of the main centers of Paris. Uh, it's the 18th uh, arrondissement. And I was there because I was trying to have a, a bank account. I had to open that. And just to do that, it was extremely complicated. But I was in the bank, the French bank called Crédit Lyon, Lyonnais, LCL. And while I was going out, coming out from the bank, I saw a woman uh, literally on the floor, um, totally uh, destroyed, uh, totally abandoned. Um, she was not a crazy woman, but it was obvious that, that this woman was uh, not welcomed in France not welcomed in, uh, in, in, in Paris. It was obvious that she lived things 
that here in France, as an immigrant in France, that totally um, changed her physically, changed even her eyes. And what struck me the most at this, that woman was looking like exactly like my mother. Mm. So it's, it's, I was attracted to her immediately because I saw it. it uh, my mother never dreamed to, to come to Paris or to go to France. This was not for her. And she never fantasized about France or the French people or the French culture. But it was like my mother being here and destroyed in uh, this country called France and this city called, called Paris. I felt the, 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 the more than a connection with her. And it was so ironic that me just coming here, just arriving in the West, in France, with a big ideas, big dreams. I am going to be a writer. I will make a film. You know, I was already, uh, I mean, uh, possessed seriously with all these ideas. And here in front of me, it was an, 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 a serious image of what the West could do to immigrants and to how the West could attract people, how Paris, how France attracts people with romantic ideas uh, of culture, of France and so many things. But yet when they are here, they are just being exploited um, and and sent, 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 sent away. That woman was a prostitute uh, because I talked a little bit with her. I didn't ask her, are you a prostitute or something like that? But just from the, the being next to her, I, I, I sensed that she was a prostitute, meaning that she was much, much more exploited than my first thoughts about her. Yeah. Just me making a connection between her and, between her and my mother. And when I left her, it was obvious for me, this was, this was 1999, that I have one day to write um, uh, a book, a novel, a story about a woman like her in a city uh, called Paris, in this land of freedom that doesn't give freedom to people like her, Arab, Muslim, and like me, of course. Yes. Well, one of our main protagonists, Sahira, is a Moroccan prostitute in her 40s in Paris, and I wanted to ask you about inhabiting her voice, partially because a lot of your work, despite being called novels, is heavily autobiographical, but more because when you were in conversation with Colm Tobin for Skylight Books, you were about to read a section of A Country for Dying, and you said to the audience before you read that, that what you were going to read was in the voice of Zahira, which is not you. And you made that clear. But then you stopped yourself and said, but actually it is you that you can't write except by pulling all that you know and all of who you are into a character, even a female prostitute. So talk to us about this gesture of, I'm going to read you Zahira and Zahira is me. Well, uh, first of all, I am now 47 years old, meaning that uh, my illusions about life and about France and about anything that could happen on this planet Earth are far gone. Like, I, like now I see things clearly, like I mean, politically, economically, even when the people are in love, I see what is going on. And I'm telling you this just to explain that the idea of to be an individual with one voice is not something for me. This idea that 
I am defined only by one thing and by one voice, and I am only speaking and writing from that only that one voice is wrong for me. Mm. Because it is clear that anyone on this planet Earth right now is here still alive because so many other people before him built up something for him, not in order to be a writer like me or something, but just prepared the paths, prepared the, 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 the roads uh, uh, for him. So um, before reading uh, the, 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 the beginning of my novel, when I was in conversation with Colm Tybin, I, actually that, that answer was not even prepared in my head. It just felt uh, natural to me because uh, I cannot uh, be a writer uh, with one dimension, with one voice. I cannot, if, even if I, you said that my novels are autobiographical, most of the people would understand it's only about me. It's only about my stories, about my gay, uh, adventures or my gay struggles or fights but, and this is wrong because although yes I, I am gay and I had a lot of horrible experiences in life but while experiencing all this I was surrounded by so many people and from those people I got uh, I got um, I'm not going to, to, to use the word support but I got influences I got their voices I as you said in the beginning I grew up in, um, in a poor family, like a really, really poor house, three rooms, uh, 11 uh, people, 11 persons in three rooms. Uh, and uh, one room for the big brother, one room for my father, and the last room for six sisters, my mother, my little brother, and me. That was nine people. So we, we were all in one teeny tiny room during maybe, I don't know, uh, 18 years or something like that, meaning that I was me as a little body, little body boy, uh, hearing and everything happening in the bodies of my sisters. It, it was not, uh, it was too much promiscuity, uh, uh, too much um, body into another body, a voice into another voice. And at that time, there was no internet, there was no social media. There was, this is 1980 and 1982, 83, 85. The only thing we had uh, is, is us in this thing called life and the people expressing, saying things, not necessarily to emancipate themselves, not necessarily to be free, in order to be free one day, but just because we are human beings and, and when we are next to each other, something has to come out through the voice. So there was my mother screaming all day long, the sisters explaining and trying to invent theories about the world and about love and about sex. There was my little brother who was totally, totally, I mean, the, he was the favorite of my mother. And it was me, the gay one. I was not, I would not say that I was rejected. But I they gave me the feeling that I was special, but at the same time, they didn't send me away. They didn't reject me. I was there with them. So I feel, I feel that the voices of my sisters, the voices of my mother uh, as are, it's not, and this is not even a metaphor, they are literally all in me. Mm. So when I write, and this is truly for me, the definition of literature and writing, because, 
yes, you prepare a book, yes, you structure it, and you spend many years preparing it. But while doing the writing, literally, other things happen. And for me, what happens every time is that the echoes of the voices inside of me, uh, the other people that I just maybe met by chance in the streets, that impose their voice in me, on me, in, 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 in my, my, my books. There is yeah. a, a, a literature with only one voice, one dimension, would, would seem to me extremely poor. So I know that what I am saying here, it's the opposite of what's being said today because there is an encouragement to be an individual and to be free and to express yourself and all that stuff. I am with that, of course, but I don't, I'm at the same time aware that sometimes that encouragement to be that individual sometimes feels just like, um, I don't know, com commercials on TV, the, do this, buy this, go here. Uh, and it's just something the media tells you to do and, and give you the, gives you the illusion that you are free, but at the same time, you have only the illusion of the emancipation. Yes. And you, you have only the illusion that you are you. And I don't think literature is, literature cannot be only about one you. In yeah. me, there are all these voices and there is certainly for sure, Zahira and Aziz and other people. Yeah, so so Zahira and Zanuba, the two central prostitutes in the story, they view, or one way they view prostitution is as a form of acting. And they watch a lot of Bollywood films, watching the actresses in the films. And you yourself have, a, have these recurring homages to female film actresses from Suad Hosni to Marilyn Monroe to Isabella Johnny. And you've said that you wanted to, as I said in the intro, live under the same sky as a Johnny. And in your story, Turning 30, you say that Isabella Johnny, her singing voice is sort of usurped or replaced the memory of your mother's own voice, has be almost become your mother's voice. Um, in your novel, Infidels, there's this line, I am the son of Marilyn Monroe. And in A Country for Dying, which has this amazing extended love letter to Ajani, you say, Ajani doesn't act. That is her great strength. She is incapable of acting. She is, she is. We know that. We understand it. We take her hand. We are with her, in her. The world will soon fall into a trance, the superseding of every limit. So I wondered, and maybe you've already answered this already, but would it be correct to say that you aren't acting either? That you aren't acting when you're Zahira or when you're Zanuba? Like Ajani, you aren't acting. Well, if you have that feeling while you're reading my books, that would be a huge compliment to me because nothing can top this. If this is the feeling I gave you when you were reading my books, that for me, I don't want... Anymore, com <laughs> compliment about my, my my what I do in general in, in life. But you know, Isabella Ajani, I was not introduced to her uh, through someone who was like obsessed with the history of cinema or something. Right. We were just my mother and my sister watching the Moroccan TV, and suddenly her face appeared on on the small screen in the eighties, and we were just teeny tiny, uh, really poor family watching everything on one channel we had in Morocco. And my mother said, 
oh, what's happening to this girl? My mother, who knew nothing about Isabella Jenny, felt a connection with her. She didn't know that Isabella Jenny had an Algerian father. She didn't know that in the way Isabella Adjani inhabited inhabit the, the characters in movies, there is something coming from us. But she recognized that on the screen. She recognized the way, like she, she was not impressed with the fact that she is French. She was not impressed with the fact, oh, this is so a chic French actress. She saw in her face and in her eyes something that is like us. And my mother was illiterate. My mother was coming from the countryside. She was, she, she didn't, she had no idea who was Marilyn Monroe was or Catherine Deneuve or Mary Streep or all these people. But in Isabella Jani, she saw something that is coming from our world, meaning the possessed people. So later I found out that Isabella Jani made uh, one of her biggest roles it was in a film called Possession by Andrzej Zolavski. And in that film, literally there is a scene of trance or where she's um, doing this, uh, this dance of possessed people. I used to watch and see in my poor Moroccan reality. So the intuition of my mother making the connection between Isabella Jenny and us was totally uh, true and sincere. Well, I, I had seen a lot of Isabella Johnny films uh, over the years, but um, I wanted to watch more of them in anticipation of our conversation. Um, and so I watched uh, L'Ete Mortier, uh, One Deadly Summer, and then I watched Possession, which I had not seen, and which is now one of my favorite all-time films. And my mouth was hanging open watching that entire film. Her, her performance... It's you, 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 you aspire to describe her performance in this book and, um, and come as close as I think as possible with words. But, um, I wanted to talk, I'm glad you brought up possession because I want to talk about possession with you. Um, not the movie, but the phenomenon of being possessed. Um, because in most of your, your books, you engage with jinns. And you've talked about them in relationship to Arab poetry, how Arab poets would have their own jinns to help them find inspiration to write, and about how only those who are possessed or sorcerers can speak to jinns. In, in your interview in Baum, you say, my literature is always about a voice imposing itself on me, on the book and on the readers, a voice that says I in a very naked way. It's an eye haunted by other eyes, by other pasts, other tears, other spirits. And, and finally, in your open letter, homosexuality explained to my mother, you say, Mother, Morocco is not the others, the government, the clergy, the eternal scoffers, the hooligans, the obstacles, the jealous, the petty, the whole of Morocco, the one that I carry in me, and the one that I address in this letter is you. It's a Morocco that is not perfect, a Morocco tense and feverish, a surging Morocco possessed. So, so talk to us about jinns and possession 
which is one one unifying aspect of your body of work? Well, first of all, I am so happy I wrote that letter in 2009 and my mother was still alive. So she heard about the letter and someone translated it to her to her what is in the letter. She was not happy about it, but uh, I am happy now that she's dead, that to know that I was enough uh, generous and intelligent to write a letter where there is that much love for her and not trying to tell her, you didn't understand me as a gay person, so you don't exist for me as a mother. I, I never said that to her. I always cherished what she did for all, all, all of us. And when it comes to possession, uh, I, I hope that the people who will hear me saying these things will not take this as a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. I grew up in a world in Morocco where there is a distinction between human beings and the genes. And not everyone is capable of being or seeing them and communicating with them. Some people are possessed by them. And through these people who are possessed by genes, we can communicate. We can, um, we can ask things, we can uh, do things, we can do good things and bad things. We can, uh, one of my sisters was possessed with, with, with genes. So I saw during all my childhood and my, uh, my adolescence, my, the body of my sisters when the gene wakes up in her, in her body, what happens to her body? She like she, she 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 falls down. She 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 leaves her first conscience, if I might say, and suddenly someone else uh, starts to speak through her body and her voice, and that person was not a person. Uh, that thing inside of her was not a human being. It was some something else. So. It is something that impressed me extremely and that I respected so much and that I feared at the same time so much because I saw my mother in fear as, as, uh, as me, but at the same time doing something, something in order to communicate with these voices, these genes inside of the body of my, 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 my sister. For me, it was um, extraordinary experiences it was horrifying experiences, but at the same time, it was uh, like a, a materialization of the idea of what we call the invisible, what l'invisible, because we think that we know everything, we human beings, and that we see everything. And it's, of course, it's, we don't. We, we, ju we just have this illusion that we see and we understand and we have control on our minds and our brains, which is not true. But witnessing these experiences with the body, through the body of my sister, gave me so, so, so much uh, linked, like a true link to the, this idea of invisible. And when, because uh, I was living that in true life, I was not studying that in order to be a writer one day. These things just happened in my life. So all these things, all this uh, love, hate, fear for the gins and the ceremonies we invented for them, the food we used to prepare for them, 
and the dances, the, the, the singing, all these things became with the years, now that I am a writer, aesthetic became um, a, 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 a literary structures I use uh, became um, a way of being, a sensation, uh, a state of mind. Mm. And I think all my books are about this. Yeah. This state of mind and these voices and me trying to bring literature and the readers with me in those state of minds. Yeah. And I was wondering, I guess I wanted to ask you about sorcerers and, and possession also because I notice that in your books, and maybe this is true in reality, that most of the people either possessed or who are who have access to the jinns are women. Or in the new book, there there's a Jewish sorcerer or a Berber who's a sorcerer. So uh, people who aren't from the mainstream, they're marginal in some capacity or another. And I didn't know if, if, um, if there's a connection there for you, that something about um, being connection to the invisible world, you have to be on the margins of society in some fashion. Now that you are saying it, I, of course, I understand the analysis you are making here. And it's true that uh, I never saw, uh, like a sorcerer or coming from bourgeois people or from the elite <laughs> Morocco or something <laughs> like that. It's most of the time uh, people who are already abandoned by the power, abandoned by the rich people, and of course. So in a way, sociologically, we can say that to be a sorcerer and to use sorcery is a way to resist to the, to the elite people, to the, to the rich families in Morocco because you know, even if you wanted to do bad things to them through sorcery, you have that right because you don't have other weapons. Uh, and certainly the fact that women, you have much more women in Morocco uh, and in the Arab world in general using sorcery and believing in jinns, it means something sociologically. It means something about the situation of women and how they resist the masculine uh, domination the, the, the men's domination and how they fight them, but they do bad things to men. <laughs> yeah. they, they, of course, and they have the right. To, and actually, uh, I, I didn't grow up with a mother who was presenting herself to us and to me as a good woman. My mother didn't care about being presented as a good wife or as a good woman. She was always thinking, whom we are going to manipulate in order to have a little bit of money, in order to have food, because she was facing harsh reality of poverty. And she understood that being honest is not going to bring her little money and food for the 11 persons she was in charge of. And believe me, my father never did that. It was her for 11 persons. So now that I am older, I find this, uh, extremely extraordinary and, and extremely powerful, extremely generous that this woman uh, that was my mother did all this, not for her in order to, to buy jewelries or clothes or to be presented as the good wife of the neighborhood. No, no, no. It was as it was weapons for her to construct something for us from the food to the house to the future. So I ended up not doing what she wanted me to do. But yet during 25 years, she 
even though she saw that I was gay and it was the disappointment for her, but she did not reject me. She did not get, tell me, tell me, go away. She, she didn't, she, 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 so yes, uh, sorcery certainly, and this is, I am saying this like consciously now, certainly is a way to resist the power in Morocco. Yeah. For sure. Well, a question I would ask most writers, which I think might be the wrong question for you, is given how much of your work is drawing from your own childhood experience and your own personal story, what you get gain from calling the books novels versus memoirs. But when I think about this notion of possession and also you describing yourself for 18 years in a room with eight other people where maybe the, the borders between one body and another and one voice and another are all blurred and identity becomes much more um, fluid. Um, I wonder if it's a relevant question. If it is a relevant question, I'm curious if there's something that calling the book a novel allows you to do to tell your true story that a memoir wouldn't allow you to do as a true story. I, I have to admit that I just don't care about this uh, like memoir, novel, short yeah, story. that's what I suspected. This is just, uh, I don't know how to say this, this is just a marketing thing that is being discussed with the publishing houses because they have to put, it's, it's actually, it has to do with the distribution even of the book, like uh, the distribution for a novel is not the same for a memoir, etc., etc. But me, I just don't care. I just, uh, while preparing a book or, or even a short story or short text to, to choose something that is extremely brief, extremely Tiny, tiny, like a moment or, or a specific uh, one minute in a moment that I will make uh, a chapter about or a whole novel about. Uh, that's what this, when it comes to structuring an, an, uh, an, 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 in, a book, in a book, I always, always choose very, I, at least I try to choose very carefully the, the specific moment I will put in this chapter and another moment in the following chapter with the hope that I will become a very good sorcerer like the Moroccan one, Moroccan right. sorcerers. And just by putting this moment next to this moment, next to this moment, something will happen. Like some, we can call it a magic, uh, a literary magic. I totally believe, uh, for instance, if I could write books without using words, that would be heaven, but and that's impossible for now. Because I always want just, I don't know, just, you know, somewhat, sometimes I am in, 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 in a bus or the subway, I just being next to someone during 15 minutes or 20 minutes, a man or a woman, a lot of things happen there between the two of us and we didn't even speak. A lot of things are being, uh, being expressed, being a lot of things are happening. So uh, that, and those things don't need words. Yes. No, I love that. Well, I, I, I wanna, I wanna um, 
stay a little longer with this question of identity and voice and self. Um, you've talked about and also written about the dangers to you of being an effeminate boy in Saleh, where you grew up, where where people acted or pretended as if homosexuality didn't exist, but at the same time, you were under the threat of rape by men in the neighborhood. And that ultimately you had to wear a mask of a man to suppress your effeminate nature as a means of survival. And in your wonderful Paris Review conversation with Edouard Louis, you talk about how Abdelataya, your given name, is no longer your real name that you have a secret name that is now your real name, and your secret name has the first name of an Egyptian actor that you love, and that Abdelataya is now your writer's name. So in a way, your given name has become a mask of sorts. This all made me think of the other main character, Zanuba, a, a close friend of Zahira and a fellow prostitute but one who's in the process of going through gender confirmation surgery. And a lot of this book is told through stories, stories told by Zanuba to Zahira that we get to overhear, or stories told about other family members, some of them some seem which seem mysterious or mythical, but also these long, moving conversations between Zanuba and Aziz, her former self, but she isn't speaking to Aziz, her former self as a grown man. She's speaking to Aziz, the boy. The boy that she was in childhood, immersed in the world of having many sisters, before she had to really conform to any categories. So in a way, before she was forced to wear any masks. So talk to us more about Zanuba and her surgery which is both a gesture toward freedom, but also I think maybe surprising to her, becomes an act of mourning as well for the boy, Aziz. Well, first of all, um, it it is very uh, sad uh, to me as a person um, to to say that... uh, Yes, I loved my family and they were poor, etc. And I was, they, they were to me lie, the lie. They were uh, the center of everything. They were even Hollywood. <laughs> they were even uh, Cairo. <laughs> they were my Hollywood. Yes. Uh, they were my stars. My sisters were my, like my true stars. And I didn't at that time, uh, this is the 80s, I didn't, uh, Hollywood or French movies were just something uh, we, we used to watch on TV. But the, them as bodies, as an inspiration, and it was them. And the fact that they, they knew what was happening to me and they didn't, um, they didn't uh, do anything actually to, 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 to help me in a way or another. And because they knew what was going on, that all these people were raping me. This was not. Uh, this is not a metaphor or something in any way possible. And um, the, the very, I, I was in a big danger at a certain moment because 
they were the, the society was put in me because I was that that very light, effeminate boy, happy. But happy meaning for them, you can use him or for whatever you want. And that's uh, that, that that's like a killing processes for uh, for teeny tiny body a boy. This is a, this is not even an adolescent. This is a boy. It's not a teenager. So for me today, forty-seven year old man, sometimes like I just cry. Like why they did not this or not? Of course, I can understand what was politically the situation in Morocco, what was sociologically going on there, and even the idea, the identity of being homosexual didn't exist in Morocco. And actually even in the West, it was still very hard. Like even in, this is the eighties, like uh, yes. it was in New York or America, this was just, uh, it was the first years of something that, so imagine this is in Morocco. And I understand that for them in, 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 this, in the sociological structure they lived in, very poor, to have a boy that, he, that was special, let's call him that, was something that, were, that was going to make them more weak in the society. It's going to, uh, it's, it's not something that will help them. And they had now, they had now, and this is very hard to say, maybe no other options that to, they could not protect me. They could not go to the streets and to the neighbors and tell them, well, this is our son, stop the wind. Because saying these things meant uh, uh, to, to be sure of what they were doing, to be proud of their gay son, etc., etc. And all these things were impossible at that time. And actually, even they are still impossible. And even today in, in Morocco and in, in so many countries, and actually even in France, and the, the, this, this idea, and this is something, this is another illusion about the West, um, that so many people think that even in the West, you can be totally you free as gay, because there are the laws. But the reality is, 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 um, is something else. So in order to, to save myself, literally, because I didn't, um, because again, I, I, they were for me the, the world, life, all these people. I, I, I could not imagine somewhere else where to go. Uh, yeah. did, that somewhere else didn't exist. What I used to do uh, around 11, 12, is from time to time, I would just go and wander uh, in the streets in, around our neighborhood and, uh, and uh, cry, 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 cry alone while walking, cry, 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 and then go back. And at a certain point, I, maybe that was me starting to be an intellectual or maybe already a writer. I started to invent this other me, this other uh, with another name and at sometimes sometimes another names and uh, for instance, I used to go next to uh, some houses uh, where some men used to live and I was in love with them or something like that. And in front of the house, I was 
sit there and invent a story just in my head and go back. Uh, I think me being a writer started here. This ability in real life to, to save myself, and that was extremely hard to do, through imagining things. But only in my head, this was not uh, like uh, the beginning of my uh, writing career or something like that. I had no idea about, I had no desire to be a writer or something. It was just, this is how I use, how this is what I invented in my brain in order to save myself, to start talking to myself and invent other avatars of me uh, and to talk to them and to to make things with them in my head uh, in order to save myself. I'm glad you brought up that the West isn't some paradise where these problems don't exist. Because I wanted to ask you something about Zahira and Zanuba, something that they both have to confront as prostitutes. And that is the white French imagination of the Arab. For instance, Zanuba is asked to dress as a savage Arab boy by white intellectual customers. Or in the conversation between Zanuba and her former self, Aziz, when Zanuba says to Aziz that she won't regret becoming a woman, Aziz says, You wanted to become the woman you always believed you were deep down? Well, look at yourself in the mirror. You are. You've succeeded. You're beautiful. You're magnificent. Ravishing. The Parisians are going to adore you. Make you into an example of a liberated Arab who's not ashamed. Not like the others. Those from the village who are still rotting in ignorance and submission. You've succeeded, my dear. Bravo, bravo. And I wondered, I guess I wondered about you, Abdelataya, the author, and whether people try to make you into an example of the liberated Arab in a way that becomes self congratulatory for France. Because it seems like in your work, you do everything in your power to make this impossible for the white French reader. But I'd be interested to hear how you're received or not received in the French imaginary? Well, uh, first of all, I'm enough lucky to write books and they are published and they have some readers here in France and they are translated in many languages. That's a huge privilege. It's uh, like, uh, yes. so whatever the way I am treated uh, by the media or some people, I, I, I don't forget that, that this is a privilege um, and a big chance. Yes, I am talented, no, 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 but still, uh, still, it's it, 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 it's a privilege. I worked for that, but it is still a, a privilege. Well, I think just by reading this novel, uh, A Country for Dying, it is clear what I think about uh, colonialism and French colonialism, French neo-colonialism, and how uh, how how deep still uh, and the the, the vision they have for Arabs and Africans is still so much racist, so much colonial. And the problem is today, like today, 2021, is that it is very hard here in France to 
to have a, a serious conversation about this topic with white French people. And because quickly you realize they are bored and quickly you realize that they, are, they don't know that much about the colonial time. And most of the time, some people would tell you, oh, come on, France left Morocco 50 years ago. Uh, like you hear certain reactions that are astonishing. And, and most of the time when people would answer me, oh, come on, France left Morocco six, 50 or 60 years ago. And I told them about uh, 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 the French Revolution happened two, two, two centuries ago, and you are still obsessed with the, <laughs> with the French Revolution. How about that? And it was very, very, very strange in a country that is obsessed with its own history uh, to, to, to see that we, the ex-colonized people, now that we are brave enough, courageous enough to... to, to to go through that past and uh, try to clean it up finally, and just go to what, what happened in the recent history. This is not even very, very long time history. But I have to admit that this is extremely depressing to me because in the French media, in the, even with my friends, uh, like I, now it's became, it's like uh, what's going on in, in America with the, the the Trump people and the, the yes. other people, like there is a, a polarization that is that is happening within uh, circles of friends, uh, people you love. Uh, this is not coming from the official enemies or people like you said. He, this is he's just dumb. He don't know. No, no, no. This is coming from really cultivated people, and um, um, but yet. Again, uh, just reading this novel, uh, A Country for Dying, you have all the answers uh, about what I think about that. But saying this, uh, I don't want uh, my, what I try to write and my books to become uh, a space just to have commentaries about what is being said in the media today this doesn't work for me yes because and maybe to say this is arrogant but i'm going to say it uh, because i think literature has to go deeper than this just to be uh, only what is happening today like uh, the struggles of today it has to reflect that yes uh, but it has to go beyond that and and I don't want my novels to be like people uh, having sociological conversations or uh, saying Michel Foucault said that and <laughs> the other with a Roland Barthes said this right. and Francois Truffaut made this film and all. For me, this, I love all these people I just named. I adore them. But the way it, they are used in the conversations today, for me, it's just uh, petrifying like they are frozen in a certain image and I don't want my novels to, my novels has to do with the, have to, has have to bring, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the dirtiness of real life. Yeah. The, the, the dirtiness, what, what is being dirty for, for real? And certainly not to clean it up in order to make it uh, look French chic or something like this. Yeah. Uh, well, I, 
you know, listening to a lot of conversations that you've had or watching conversations that you've had, I love how you continually refuse literary influence. You've talked about how you've felt like books seem bourgeois compared to cinema. But when people bring up you liking movies by Fassbender or Douglas Sirk, you also push back against this saying art cinema was not an influence either. It was cheap, popular movies that were. And similarly, you studied Proust and Genet and admire them but they aren't influences. And recently one interviewer brought up Pessoa as an influence and you bring him up often yourself, but you pushed back and said, no, Pessoa isn't an influence and Nicki Minaj is doing many of the same things, which I loved. Um, You've also said Arab literature with perhaps the exception of Shukri isn't an influence either. That your book is not made of other books or necessarily even in conversation with other books, and that this is clearly a question of class for you. And I wanted to link this to a question you're often asked about why you write in French, or perhaps another way to phrase it, why do you continue to write in French when the original reasons to do so, to live in France to make films, has been achieved? And the reason I ask this is because of many things you often say about French. First and foremost, that originally you associated it with the arrogant Moroccan elite, the powerful and moneyed people in Morocco, not the people you knew and loved. You also have said that you still feel inferior within French. And you've also said that the language is not one you think will stay in you forever. That if you were to move to Argentina, for instance, that it would probably vanish and be replaced quickly by Spanish. But I wondered, does French nevertheless give you something advantageous, a mask, a distance, a space, to write in that Arabic wouldn't? Or, in other words, what what keeps you from switching now to writing in Arabic, now that you're both known and loved on your own terms? Well, first of all, when, when, when someone says, I grew up, in a poor family, and I lived in poverty. Most of the people hear something fashion poor. They don't, they don't realize what does it mean to be poor. Um, and even when you try to explain, people are very quickly bored with uh, the reality of being poor. And I say this to you because I cannot uh, escape that feelings inside of me of the humiliations of being poor, the people looking at you because you are just poor in Morocco, in Rabat, in, even in the neighborhood where I used to live, which was a poor neighborhood, but even in, within that neighborhood, there were some people who have more money than others. And certainly not even here in France. So uh, there was no way for someone like me living this poverty, extreme poverty, to dream about the idea to become a writer and to construct them. It seemed to me from the people I used to watch on TV, uh, some writers, they seemed like living in, I don't know, uh, Beverly Hills of the world. <laughs> or uh, And even in the way they were speaking and expressing things. And, and maybe I am here totally unfair to them 
but I am, this is how I felt, it felt, not only to me, but to my sister too. And the only way in order not to be totally dominated by them and by their words, we used to laugh at them uh, with the intellectual posture. And, uh, yes. and I'm talking about the Moroccan speaking, Moroccan writers speaking French and reciting what they learned in La Sorbonne and uh, talking about this and that's meaning meaning, oh, if you want to be considered as a writer, you have to recite, uh, I don't know, Jean Genet or Marcel Proust. If you, if you start talking about Marcel Proust, people will take you seriously. But you, if you only talk about your mother who is doing sorcery, you are just a poor guy who is not sophisticated enough in his brain in order to become as a good writer as someone who is who now Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Yes. But really me, I, that would be for me uh, the biggest betrayal ever to, uh, to say that my mother, for instance, who was illiterate, was not clever, was not intelligent, was not able to, to think of her world and to struggle inside of her world. And just for instance, to go now and to talk about her as an oppressed Arab woman, an oppressed Muslim woman, and only talk about her from that perspective and not say what was the richness. Yes, it, she was poor, but her life was extremely rich with so many, many events happening today and her screaming nonstop all day long and all night long sometimes. So you see this Poverty, people, they don't want to hear it. They only want you to say, I escaped poverty and I am now this free gay Arab living in France and Paris and just celebrate me as that. But me, uh, I, I, and I have no choice here. The, my, my first images, my first struggles, the, what is, what we can call transgressions, uh, uh, my mother dealing with police, begging police people, the men to let us go, kissing their hands and inventing a character just to, 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 to stay safe somehow. So, so you see, the, 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 this is big lessons of life. And, uh, and it explains, I think, everything why my writing is like the way I am, I am, I am doing it. And it's certainly not when I come here to France. And uh, I, uh, if you ask me who is the biggest filmmaker for you today, I, I would uh, tell you um, Robert Bresson. For me, he, he is French. But uh, for here, the way we talk about Robert Bresson, he's, it seems like he, he is not accessible to anyone. And I, feel, and I feel that this is wrong. I, I'm sure that Robert Bresson in his grave is not happy about this. Yeah. The fact that his cinema is only an elite cinema, is considered as an elite cinema, is uh, something that hurts me actually somehow. Because I'm sure if my mother was still alive, if I show her certain films by Robert Bresson, she will understand them because I, me personally, I feel that Robert Bresson was Moroccan because he believes in spirituality and sorcery and he, he put some magic there in his, 
in his films. And I'm sure that Morocco or someone in India or I don't know in Argentina and anyone poor or very poor would understand that language. Uh, and he engages with poverty. Also. Exactly. And, but he did it in a very rich way. So uh, until now, the, the way we treat the pure, poor people and the poverty, it has to be done in a certain way. It, and this, uh, this thoughts I'm trying here to give you is something that I had when I was already a teenager. Like for instance, when I used to go to Rabat, the capital of Morocco, with all these fancy people, I already invented um, characters, avatars that I will use just to stop their hate and their, 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 their separation. And it was the same thing when I was writing the screenplay of uh, my film, Salvation Army. The first important thing I put in my mind, not tell the story of this gay Moroccan boy as it is expected, the victimization, uh, the, the, the Western uh, point of view on a gay Arab boy. It has, I, it has to be, uh, well, he has to be like me, as clever as me, as, as tortured as me, as aware of what's going on really as me, and not only a teeny, a little boy, effeminate, uh, yes, raped, but at the same time, he is clever. He's, he knows what is going on. Mm. So not again, not only one day, 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 day dimension. Yeah. Uh, well, when you mention Michel Foucault and Roland Barthes, you've also talked about how you resist looking at your works or works in general of literature through the perspective of literary theory, because it would be, a, a, in a way, being colonized a second time as a writer to take that way of meaning making as a way, as a frame through which to look at what you've done. It made me wonder about how you felt about the fact that you are now yourself the subject of scholarship, that there's an entire academic book, hundreds of pages long by Tina Dransfeld Christensen entitled Writing Queer Identities in Morocco, Abdella Taya and Moroccan Committed Literature. It's a book that compares and contrasts you to other Moroccan writers, but uses you as the central subject and the ways that you have reshaped the discourse and trajectory of Moroccan literature. And how, how does that feel for you? Is that, that must feel, I can't imagine how that feels actually. <laughs> well, uh, one day my big brother who never helped me when I was little gay in Morocco, heard that I was invited to American university and that impressed him so much. And he, to he told his daughter to tell me that he's proud of me, but he was proud of what? Right. I made it to America, but um, you know, uh, we are all only humans, flesh, blood, skin, and we need to be caressed and uh, to be talked with love and gentle at a certain moment, not with, when it's too late. So, of course, it's a huge privilege to be that to have Americans, universities, or other people in Denmark, like Tina or other countries. It's a huge privilege. And I helped them when they asked me to have interviews. And I, I, 
I, I, I answered the questions and uh, I, I read the books, but I don't read it like uh, with the, did they get this right? Or I am, I actually, even if they got it wrong, it doesn't matter to me. Yes. And I, I read it and I, luckily for me, I have the ability to forget about that. Uh, which means that I am just an arrogant person. I am obsessed <laughs> with my own ideas. There is no one who will change my ideas and uh, the ideas of the other people inside of me, the, the voices, etc. Et but of course, it's a huge uh, yeah. a privilege, but I don't know, it doesn't interfere uh, with the, my idea of writing books or writing stories or writing uh, anything. But you know, when I, I say that I don't want to be colonized by other books, it, it, it's not even uh, like a, a gesture of, uh, uh, of like I'm playing the hero here. No, I don't know. If you take uh, Jean Genet, he produced his literature in, in a certain social and political context that is his. And his books are the, the, the production of that. And his life, the prison he was in when he was a little boy, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know how I can take that, that, that thing that, that are that things that are specific to him and to put them into something that is specific to me. That would be for me impossible to do. Yeah. Well, part of the reason why I wanted to bring up Tina's book, Writing Queer Identities in Morocco, is I want to return to this, at least briefly, to this question of why French and not Arabic, um, or at least not that question, but what are you doing within French to make French French for you, or to to change French? Because, because you know, I was listening to your translator Amin Ramadan speak. And she says that your French is very different than the French of others she translates. And in this book, Writing Queer Identities in Morocco, Tina Dransfield Christensen quotes you talking about how you proceed in French through your first origin, which is poverty. And this is what Christensen says. This poverty is reflected in Taya's literary style, which he himself has characterized as Pauvre Francais, not mauvais Francais, as in bad French, which some reviewers, both French and Moroccan, have accused him of, but quote-unquote poor French, as in a language that reflects his poor background, but simultaneously resists the norms and conventions of rich or so-called good French. So, so maybe for all of us non-French speakers, could you talk about your French, um, the pauvre Francais for us? I think French at first was such something that we used to hear on Moroccan TV. So it was far from us. And then for certain reasons, we used to go to the capital, Rabat. And there you would meet certain people using French phrases or French words in order to say something about them, meaning that they are superior to you. And, and actually they, they did more than that. They would uh, like insult you or just because they, you, they were able to speak French, they would 
they would allow themselves to have a certain uh, postures and like for instance if you are waiting in line and something and suddenly a more a bourgeois moroccan uh, women from rabat she could go without being in the line just because she was the bourgeois woman with the the french and we would all accept that and this is something that i lived uh, during many many years so even when i studied french literature in the moroccan university of rabat university mohammed v in rabat a lot of students with me in the class were coming from the bourgeois system the french schools in morocco until now until now there are still french schools in morocco and only the very very elite people would ha have enough money to send them mm. so i remember very clearly the way they used to look at me and who like all in me maybe maybe you you don't see it but for them it was clear like all in me physically uh, my gesture the way i am poor and i will stay poor and this is my destiny just because i don't know french if this is not uh, the the the, the tr a true image of what the meaning of the french colonization is i don't know what would be and yes france left morocco in 1956 but the french language is still until today um, used is still being used by the bourgeois and the rich as a way to separate themselves from the rest of the moroccans this is extremely sad. This is what I'm telling you here. This is extremely sad. It means that if you only know Arabic, you are nothing in your own country, Morocco. It's like I tell you, you, David, in America, if you know only English, you are nothing. Mm. How would you feel? Yeah. And like, this is what I grew, grew up in. And of course, and I think this is my right. I wanted to not stay in poverty. And I said, okay, I am going to learn your language, that French language, and I'm going to be better than you in that language. Of course, it was a very silly of me to think that. But a miracle happened in the university, and I don't know how or why, I became the, the, the best student during five years. I don't know how, how I did it because I am just coming from the public schools which I, where I learned everything in Arabic except five hours of French each week. And I don't know, like a, like a revenge dynamic or in my brain was so hard and it became, I don't know, like a Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Like, like merciless, like, but yet being this presenting to the world this very nice polite face that I know people only see in me when they meet me first but inside of me I, I became that terminator so when I learned French it was with the intention to kill them all <laughs> those those rich Moroccan people who wanted to who were already killing us all yes uh, I so I learned it with the desire not to be French as them, not to be uh, bourgeois as them, not to be frozen in French like I used to see them. I, I wanted to be, I don't know, I wanted to be better than them in French 
And, but I didn't, I did, and I repeat it here, I didn't want to be French. I, I remember clearly that when we, we were, we were, when we, when we were uh, studying, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Racine, uh, uh, Jean Genet, uh, André Gide, uh, uh, Paul Verlaine, and all these people, I was not, these, these names, of course, are huge in the French culture, at like big, 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 big names. Like even, even Hollywood stars are nothing compared to them in the space of French culture. But yet me meeting them in my years in University of Rabat, I felt like Paul Verlaine, what he was talking about, was very similar to what I was living. I, I didn't feel like, oh, what a big master of words he is. I, of course he was, but what he was talking about, the misery, the, the rain, the, the complicated love stories, the, the cries, the, of course the homo, hidden homosexuality and all that, it felt Moroccan. It didn't felt this is French chic reality <laughs> to me. So in a way, I thank God if he exists that I was not, I didn't feel inferior uh, inside of the French culture at that time. Yeah. And, and that's what made me a, a, a writer because, and this is of course very paradoxal because I am coming from nothing, like literally nothing. And yet with that nothing, I come to the French language and I tell them I'm going to be better than you. And in your French language, I'm going to put what is me. It's extremely arrogant. <laughs> it's very sub subversive. It's great. I didn't think of me as a subversive. I didn't uh, at that time. But this is, I don't know, intuition of life. Yeah. But again, I repeat it. I was so much surrounded with so much hateful people, rich using French against us in order to diminish us that I have the right motivation just in front of me. They will not kill me and I will be better than them. Yeah. Well, it's foolish, but that's what somehow made me a writer. Well, now that we're talking about languages, let maybe it's a perfect time to hear you read in yet another language. Um, we had talked about maybe having you read the, the beginning of the Isabella Johnny section where Zanuba is telling the story of Ajani to herself as a boy, as the boy Aziz. Isabel Ajani. She is Algerian like you and me. She appears, she disappears, she reappears, she is here. She is no longer here. We search for her. We thought we had forgotten her, but she is always somewhere. She hides, she sleeps, she forgets herself, she loves. She goes far, very far. I think she frequently leaves this world, what we call the world, the round earth, the blue and the black sky. I am convinced Isabel Adjani is not like the rest of us. She is not made of flesh and blood. There is only water in her body. This woman carries in her something we don't know yet. Future? the future as it is depicted in science fiction movies, better, much better than that. Man, 
and women reunited in another time, not the present, not the past, but what will come, the sublime, that sublime explosion that never stops spending and hoes first echo we sometimes hear at night. Isabel Adjani was born then, in, in that moment, precisely. I think we call it the Big Bang. There was nothing, absolutely nothing. Boom, everything begins, life. Not life as we know it today, no. Life in a mad rhythm, a hellish but completely bearable heat, a cosmic conscious. There are not yet human beings, other beings, other creatures, other intelligences, but Isabella Jenny, so white, so black, so blue, nude, of course, carrying in her all the lives, speaking all the languages, mastering all the signs. She is not a goddess. She is the spark. Her fire captured us. Humankind is forever attached to her in fear, in ecstasy. We listen through her. We hear what happens in her, the voices of all the world. We exist to follow her, love her, adore her, venerate her, wait for her. Is she coming? Is she here? Not yet? Not yet. In fact, she is already here, in us, in you, in me. This world today doesn't understand Isabella Jenny, doesn't love her the way she deserves. Men see her only as a very talented and very temperamental actress. They are wrong, 10,000 times wrong. Isabella Jenny, the actress, cannot be defined by the idea of a career. She is beyond that, beyond that modern triviality. To say that she is making a career is an insult to someone like her. That woman invents and acts out things that are much more modern than we could imagine. Incarnations and interpretations that tell us everything, absolutely everything. Do you understand, Aziz? Are you following me? I know that you love Isabella Jenny, just I do. Remember how the two of us were swept away by the film, the story of Idel Arch. Do you remember that movie? We watched it one sad afternoon on Algerian television. Do you remember what she says near the end? That unbelievable thing for a young girl to walk on water, cross from the ancient to the new world to join her lover, that thing will I do. That's what she said, isn't it? She is the one who said it, not the character. It's possible I've mixed up her words, it doesn't matter. Those words convinced us, us that this woman was indeed from our home country, Algeria in shambles, and also from the other world. Her conviction and her fervor sent unforgettable shivers down our spins. 
gave us memories that would last forever. You and I, we try to learn by heart the sacred words she spoke in the film. We might have invented them, reinvented them. The film entered once and for all into our eternal memory. The face of Isabel Adjani who loves, who suffers, who cries, who yells, who runs, who jumps, who falls, a hunted face inhabited by all of us. One face and only one face and nothing else. We never grow tired of it, we, did we? That dare and tortured face, madly in love, courageous and alone, in writing, in clairvoyance, in the beyond. Isabel Adjani is also a, clair a clairvoyant in the proper sense of the term. She sees here, beyond, the man who made this film truly understood her. He placed Isabel Adjani in situations where the world ceases to be the world. The world ends, Adjani continues. For weeks and weeks, every day we cried thinking about that film, that body in love, that wandering, that distress, that sadness, that absolute solitude, embraced. And when we learned that this woman was Algerian, Algerian, do you remember what we did, Aziz? We went to the public bath, to the hammam. You went to the hammam, Aziz, and you tenderly made love with three men at the same time. That was your way of being in love and in recognition. You understood then the reason for that mysterious and miraculous attachment to Isabel Adjani. She was better than Algerian. Within her flowed something that you too had and that you recognized so clearly in her. You were not wrong, no, no. Isabel Adjani was from another world, yours. You saw in her your idea of possession how one takes within oneself the entire universe before and after, how one adorns oneself in it, how one dances and cries in it. Isabella Jenny was exactly that, the truth according to you, beauty as seen through your eyes gazing at the world and what they had captured, stolen. Been listening to Abdella Taya read from Ahmed Ramadan's translation of A Country for Dying. So sometimes on the show, I invite other people to ask questions of the guest. And I had this fantasy that I would somehow be able to contact Isabella Johnny and I'd get her to record something and I would play it for you right here. Because I had this, there's a listener of the show who writes for one of the best film magazines in the United States and happens. And I reached out to him and I was like, do you have any connections? Cause he interviews people like Denny Levant and Claire Denis. And he knew of quite a big French film director closely and reached out 
to her. And unfortunately, she didn't have a way to get a connection to a Johnny. But I just want you to know I tried really hard to have a Johnny be part of the program today. That means the world to me. Uh, earlier you said that one of the reasons I wanted to come to Paris is to be under the same sky as Isabella Jenny. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and you know, it's like when you are depressed or you feel like, oh, the God and the world suddenly are so sad. What do you do? You watch Marlene Monroe and suddenly you understand that Marlene Monroe is not only an actress. Yeah. It's else. It can't be this... Tri- 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 trivial she's only an actress she gives and i think that's what makes marlene monroe so 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 alive until now mm-hmm. that people sees what she gave she gave mm-hmm. and for me isabella jenny is maybe bigger than marlene monroe but it's it's just something uh, that she gave me and and this is not a star trek thing uh, or like um, or a obsession or a queer obsession or something like yeah. a gay for, um, it's um, I don't know it's she, we say uh, in French elle a la lumière she has the light she has the light yeah and don't in on top of the fact that she is an incredible actress in terms of acting and she was nominated to Oscars, to French uh, Oscar de César, and all that stuff. But that doesn't count. That's this is not what makes her so special. The the the, the, the Oscars or the French César. No, no, no. It's every time that she appears, not only in movies, like she is here. Yeah. You 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 stop being you. <laughs> I stop being me, and I am her. And like I am in her, in everything she, and it doesn't mean that I, I I agree with everything she says. It's something else that mm-hmm. I am inside of her. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that many people who who can have this uh, that effect. This, that that effect on me, except the sorcerers. That was yeah. <laughs> and well, I think maybe Isabella Jenny, she she she, she must. I am sure of that she must believe in the same things as me, like the sorcery, the jinns. Yeah. Otherwise, she can't be that good actress. <laughs> well, in all of your books, your, your women, while marginalized, and you've spoken to this, are nevertheless really powerful. Um, in your open letter to your mother, you said, Mother, you surely do not know it, but this desire to rebel, it's you who gave it to me. In our family, you've always been the guide, the schemer, the rebel, the one who makes things happen. You understood quickly that you had no other choice but to be a man in a place of men, to be better and braver than all the men around us. And I feel like we see this rebellion and scheming and bravery in many of the women in your books. But there's also, I think, a recurring portrayal of the humiliated man. And I was hoping we could talk about that a little bit. This book opens where we learn the life expectancy in Morocco is 56 years old and that Zahira's father fought in Indochina for France and yet received no retirement pay from France for his service in the military. And when he gets sick and comes home, 
From the hospital, he's exiled to a half-finished second story of the house. And the family is supposed to stay separate from him for their own health. And nobody visits him, yet they can hear his footsteps upstairs. He's abandoned and ultimately he kills himself. And there's a similar situation portrayed in your early books with the father banished upstairs and dying an early death. And, and in this book, Zahira is haunted by her failures regarding her, her father. The Zahira we see is super kind, a caretaker. She calls her prostitution humanitarian rescue because she focuses her clientele on poor immigrants. She takes care of Zanuba during her surgery. She takes care of Mojaba, the gay Iranian revolutionary who she gives refuge to during the month of Ramadan in Paris. But all of her caretaking seems also to be a negotiation with her guilt around what she didn't do for her father when he needed her. So I was hoping we could maybe spend a little bit of time talking about this fallen man character, which feels like the diminished or fallen or humiliated man that seems to be a figure in a lot of your work also. You know, sometimes I think that straight men are just so poor. <laughs> they know nothing. <laughs> they they just are born and they the world tells them that they have the power and they act like they have the power, but they don't have the power. And yet they impose on the women and LGBTQ people their illusion of power. And we have no other choice but to fight that illusion of power they impose on us. But deep down, they are just lost. And uh, we are attracted to what are their messy chaos. Uh, and this for me is coming from the, the, the images I've seen with for my father. My father was uh, my, my real father in real life. Um, he was tender, he was, uh, he was sweet, he was... Uh, but he he was not able to fight. He was not uh, with the time, uh, and I loved him. Uh, and, but at the same time, I at certain point I cannot help but he was not there in the street to scream and to fight with the people. It's my mother who did it. He was just constructing somehow this very romantic uh, image of himself, a depressed guy, man in Morocco, and okay, I'm depressed, uh, do the work for me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm here I'm talking seriously uh, um, because this I am witnessing even today with um, the husbands of my sisters in Morocco and with the lovers, loves, concubines of friends I have here in France, white French women, what they live, like, the, the, the amount of submission, uh, it's unbelievable. Like uh, the, the submission imposed on us by straight men uh, who only have the illusion of the power is uh, beyond what we can think uh, of. But uh, when it comes to my novels, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the image of my father there trying to be a romantic, depressed guy, uh, uh, the loser guy, um, mm -hmm. the one who is 
Mahmoud, he said, this is something that you hear a lot in Morocco, straight men, depressed, telling people, do something for me or I will jump or I will commit suicide. You know that man, straight man commits suicide much more than statistically. Uh, there is this, the, 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 it, it makes you think uh, that even when they are in troubles, they are putting on us their uh, egocentric and um, uh, narcissistic uh, image of themselves losing the power. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I'm trying to say here that my father was lucky, more than lucky, to have a woman like my mother, who not only gave him sex on a very daily basis, because at some point, it, this is only what they want, sex. And not only that, but she built the whole thing, the whole meaning of the world to him. And um, the, the beginning of the novel, A Country for Dying, this is not what is being narrated, but I wrote this novel in 2012, 2013, 2015, and, in, and it was published in France in 2015. And since that, like if I had to rewrite the beginning of this novel, I will be harsher on him. Mm. And I put much more uh, re-evaluation to the mother because the mother in the beginning here, she is only described as a dictator. Yeah. There's another humiliated man in the book, Alal, that I want to talk about at some point. But before we get there, I reached out to Viet Tan Nguyen to ask to have him ask you a question. Um, I know you've met um, when he was on the show. We we talked about his most recent book, which also takes place in Paris, is centered around the French Vietnamese community, but whose primary interactions in the book are with the French Algerian community of Paris. This is uh, Viet's question for you. Um, a country for dying includes a move to Saigon in 1954. Why did you feel it necessary to have that place and time in the novel? What is added by including this particular something that you didn't have to include? I wondered if it may have something to do with an interest in comparative colonial experiences. Well, first of all, thank you very, very much, Yet for this question. I love you very much, and I love your I read only the sympathizer when it was translated in in French. So I didn't read the the, the book he just published. Thank you very much for the question. Yet, um, I included Saigon, and in Morocco they call it L'Indochine, Indochine, in China. In Morocco and in France, this is, until now, the name is L'Indochine. In in Moroccan Arabic, he was in Indochine. He was in, he did L'Indochine. Ah, oh, he's there in Landushin. Mm. This name was just there uh, before even me understanding what does it mean, colonization, France colonization. It was part of our life, of something happened in the past for, for, for some people from my family and other families. And something horrible happened to them and the, the, some sacrifice happened to them and uh, some killing happened to them. And 
the whole, this whole horrible experiences were condensed in one name, Landushin, Landushin, Landushin. So I put the, the, the uh, Saigon and Landushin in my novel. It appears really at the end, and I'm not going to, to ruin the, the, the surprise for the readers. I'm not going to say what really happened. It just adds that layer of how complex and how brutal was the, the French colonization and how they used uh, people, the bodies of people and send them wherever they want in order to be more exploited than in their own country, Morocco. Because here you find the aunt of Zanuba, uh, Zina, being sent in, uh, uh, to Saigon in the 50s by the French and being used for sex by the French soldiers. And I'm not going to tell everything what's going on there, but it's what, what I told you earlier, like me as a writer here speaking to you, writing in French, being translated into English. I am here because someone did some sacrifices for me and that person is my mother in the 70s and the 60s. She did something for me. Like literally, she didn't understand me as a gay person, but she feed me, she gave me food, she gave me money to take the bus to go to university. And all these things are huge, have huge value. And I have to tell them to the world and not only talk about myself as the writer, self-made writer. It doesn't mean nothing. So in a country for dying, when Zineb, the, the prostitute, the aunt of, Zen, Zen, of Zahira appears, suddenly we it, it gives another light of the actual exploitation of the immigration in the France today. This exploitation didn't start 10 years ago. It started many, many years, many, many years ago. Yeah. That's the first intention. The second intention for me is I always like uh, to bring something surprising at a certain point. I don't want my characters or the people speaking like to be too, like, like the character of Alal. Suddenly he's there. <laughs> there is nothing that prepares the, the, the appearance of Alal in the, in the book. And suddenly he's there. And I love this way of structuring my books as something that is that shake the books and shakes the book and shakes the reader, like, oh, who is this guy? Who's speaking? Yeah. What is he saying? Who is this guy? And like suddenly the guy, the reader is not even sure of what he's reading, but at a certain point he will make, I hope, a sense of what I am trying to, to write about. Well, Viet's new book, the one that takes place in Paris, unlike your book, um, is very much a book in conversation with other books and a book in conversation with post-colonial and anti-colonial theory in other books and mentions a lot of thinkers and philosophers. And right around the time that we spoke, President Macron and his education minister, Frédéric Vidal, they spoke out against post-colonial theories and they characterized them as an American contamination of French universities and they coined the term Islamo-leftism. And they said that the pedagogy of French universities 
would be examined to remove the influence of Islamo-leftism. And Macron also spoke last fall in the, la- in the largely black and brown suburbs of Paris, saying to that audience that one of the reasons they were unhappy was not because of their material conditions, but because of these post-colonial theories from America that were making them unsatisfied. But one of the ironies at least for me, is that a lot of these theories that he's calling American either originated from or were heavily influenced by Francophone thinkers, Franz Fanon, Aimé Césaire, Jean-Paul Sartre, were all crucial to the American post-colonial theory development that he's calling American, which really is coming from colonized French-speaking people through America, and coming back to France. But I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts about the contemporary moment, if you have any, um, about this uh, move to the right of Macron and Vidal um, and the way that they're targeting uh, or inventing a term called Islamo-leftism, which didn't really exist, um, and it has very vague uh, connotations. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, on this with regards to uh, the current situation in Paris? If you remember earlier, I was telling you about the ignorance about us I see every day in so many white French people. And every time I can't help but feel sad, like I am asked to not only to accept their ignorance and their racism, and I am asked to to teach them things about us and everything you teach them, it it is being erased immediately. And you have to tell them again, every day, something else about you. And uh, it's revolting, of course, It's, um, it's exasperating, but at the same time, I don't want uh, to be uh, trapped in, 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 because all this discourse, these words are being put in the media with intentions. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be that guy who will be here systematically answers to everything they will invent uh, just for political reasons to them. I think I have literature and I have like interviews like here for you to express uh, colonization, post-colonization, to give right images about us without every time, without putting what I am saying and writing about just to answer them because it will make, it gives them, it will give them much bigger honor. It will just validate that they are imposing the right debate to have and what is the wrong debate. You see what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. So so I am convinced, I have my convictions and and I'm involved politically. I write sometimes uh, articles, et cetera, et cetera. But the times we are living, it's extremely scary. Sometimes you say something and some people will take that phrase and suddenly you find yourself in in, in, in uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's in, in chaotic social media uh, 
that means nothing, just people being obsessed with one phrase or one word. So I think here, me, I have to be extremely uh, cold, uh, cold uh, when it comes to dealing with these things and not to be uh, impatient and not to, to, to jump in the traps they are putting for me as an Arab or people like me as an Arab and as a Muslim, because I consider myself as a Muslim and I am a Muslim, gay and Muslim and Arab. And I don't want me and my writing to be, to have only, to have a meaning that I am doing that this to answer their question. Yes. That would be too poor for me. I am somehow answering. I am I'm somehow um, talking about what, I hope what's going on the, 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 in our world today, but I don't want, uh, you see what I mean? I, 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 I am too much arrogant anyway, <laughs> too, too much uh, self-conscious of my, my value. And I know that there are not that much gay Arabs who, who, are, who are writers and in the world and, uh, or published gay Arab writers. So, I know, and this is very arrogant to say, I know, but I am conscious of the fact that I, I, I have a certain value and I have uh, my voice counts and I will never, as much as I could, let other people take me and use me as the, 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 the gay Arab that French, our friends freed. Yeah, no, I feel like your work, your work, um really embraces complexity and contradiction. And I, I, um, in a way that makes it hard to, to pigeonhole or define you in a way that you could be used that way. I think I want to, I want to stay without a minute because this, this section that Viet points out, both the presence of Moroccan soldiers fighting in France and fighting for France in Vietnam and the presence of Moroccan prostitutes in Vietnam for white French soldiers who didn't want to sleep with Asian women. It made me curious just to learn more about that history and learning that, in fact, tens of thousands of North African Arabs fought for the French in Vietnam or Andochine, but also that when France exiled the King of Morocco, there were a whole bunch of Moroccan soldiers who switched sides um, and fought alongside the Vietnamese and there's even a monument in Hanoi called the Morocco Gate to commemorate the soldiers who did this. And kind of like this complicated history, I feel like your books do a similar complicated thing, narratively and politically. For instance, I feel like your books both embrace and critique Islam at the same time, that they both embrace and critique Morocco at the same time, that you show France as a seductress and also ultimately a country that fails to live up to what it promises. And the books feel deeply immersed in Arab culture, but also in infidels, for instance, you evoke a North Africa pre-Arabization and pre-Islam with the Berber warrior queen Kahina, who led her people against the Arab, Arab invasion of North Africa in the 7th century. It feels to me like you have this awareness of intersectionality in your books in the way you construct narratives also. I don't know if that's, if that's the right way to say it, but um, 
but one of the ways I see it is in the the way you have the presence of black characters and your inclusion of anti-black racism within the Arab world. I'm thinking of the character Carabino in An Arab Melancholia, who's a hotel cleaner in Cairo and also a refugee from Darfur when his parents were beheaded by Sudanese Arab guerrillas. And he hates Cairo because of its racism and he gets stoned in the streets. But I was also hoping we could talk about the chapter in A Country for Dying called May She Burn, which feels like a complicated intersection of misogyny and racism, ultimately. Because when people find out in Morocco that the money Zahira is sending home for them has come from prostitution, there are people who want her dead. But nobody, I think, wants her dead more than Alal, who wanted to marry her, but was rejected by her mother, probably because, or at least partially because he was black. Um, can you can you talk about this section and writing this section from Alal's perspective? I will. Uh, I will never present myself uh, as like a good person <laughs> or only a good person. Uh, this is a common knowledge, like when we are dealing with anyone in real life. So literature has to reflect that. There is no other way to, to make like, um, for me, to, to write only like someone who is you know, a good person or uh, like the no binarism. Everything has to be ambiguous because that's what we are. Uh, we all have little bits of evil inside of us. Uh, we are all placed in situations where we do things that are not right because this is how human beings constructed what we call society, human societies. So that's extremely important in all my books. Like even the gay heroes in Vin Me, uh, they always add a little bit of uh, evil. It's it's uh, because because that reflects for me reality, the basic reality of human beings. If you add to this ambiguities, uh, someone who is black uh, in Morocco, so the level of complexity just uh, explodes. And I have to admit that even me, the gay person, uh, oppressed uh, and raped and a lot of bad things that happened to me when I was little, even me, at a certain point, I was racist uh, towards Black people because that's what was being uh, placed in Morocco society uh, when it comes to Black people. So I, like, for instance, maybe and I'm even ashamed to say this, like, I... For a long time, I was not even attracted to black men. Can you imagine this? And uh, 20 years ago, I had to, to, like, to, to rethink myself. Like, this is not right. Why? Like, well, and I understood that the, uh, the, the implant, the racism implant in me are, are so, so, so strong. And without me even thinking about that I am a racist against black people yeah because usually most people when you tell them oh this is a racist thing what you just said or we just said there's a oh no i'm not a racist most people would say that exactly. but me 
Tilly knew I was, I think, as most I, I think I was racist in because that's what was put inside of me. I was not thinking of black people. Like I was not even thinking of them <laughs> until 20 years ago. So uh, I, I, I remember it started, I started this serious thinking when I arrived here in Paris. Somehow my brain uh, confrontation with, with white French society in, here in Paris, suddenly you see yourself in other people living somehow the same otherness than as you. And, and these people, they could be totally the opposite of you in real life, but still they live something as similar to you. They could be, I don't know, someone uh, like in Infidels, the, the, the hero becomes a terrorist, but it doesn't mean that a terrorist is only someone that is supposed to be condemned karma. It has to be much more the, the, the developed. So the character of Alal comes uh, from, um, from all this thinking and, um, and from actually uh, something that is, uh, that really happened in, 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 in real life when I was a teenager. There was a black family and they were there and I, 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 I knew some stories about them. But with the years, I just didn't pay attention. And suddenly I started to think about them and, and, and I remembered uh, that one uh, boy, one, a young man in that family, who was, he was black and he married a white, white, white uh, Moroccan woman from the city of Fez. And the city of Fez, it's the, the the center of what, what, what the Moroccans calls, call the Moroccan civilization, sophi Moroccan sophistication. Because like she was so white and that provoked a scandal in, Mor in my neighborhood. Mm. How come they were saying this so white women from Fez, yeah. the city of Fez married this black, black, black guy. Like you see, and I remember even my sisters being shocked, what is this? And, uh, and this story, I used it here in, uh, in, in, in the book with the, the character of Zahira and how she betrayed Alal uh, uh, by refusing to marry him and to follow what her mother told her to do. Yeah. Well, I, I want to return to your conversation with Edouard Louis and I'm gonna, I'll make sure to link to that conversation because it's so good. He said something I thought was interesting and I wondered if you agreed with it. He said, I think my work and yours no longer ask the question of integration into collectives, but rather how to flee. And he suggests that the centering of flight in a narrative opens up new possibilities. And that comment made me think of two stories in A Country for Dying, two stories of escape, the story of Zineb, Sahira's aunt who mysteriously disappears. And everyone sort of feels as if she's escaped, but not knowing where. And that not knowing becomes sort of mythological and her story is, is captivates everybody in their imagination. And then there's also another story called The Happy Tale of Naima, 
And I wondered if you could speak to their role in the book or to how much or how little Edouard Louis' uh, characterization of flight and escape being central to your writing feels feels true to you. I have to admit that I am in love with the idea of to leave, leaving, yes, leaving, appearing, to, to stop something, to cut, to use a <laughs> knife, uh, to, to be merciless sometimes. Not that you are a merciless, merciless person, but you are put in a certain situation, you, you just stop it. And it comes, I think, from what happened to me as a gay person when I was little. I, you, could, you cannot talk with the people. You cannot enter in serious conversation with them. You cannot convince them. You can, they all, the all thing they want to do is to put their power on you. So you have to be much more clever than them and cut the conversation, leave, and to be in a certain way that impresses them. And you just leave. And this gives me a lot of pleasure, I have to admit. This power of leaving, of going away and uh, ending things. Um, it, with the time, of course, it became, it became uh, a problem when I, was, when I have, when I have uh, love relationships because I am still dominating, dominated until now by this idea of I want to leave. I am not. I'm going to leave. But in the book here, a country for dying. All these characters left their first countries. They thought France was going to be the place where to find dreams, true dreams, to find freedom. But France betrayed them, and is treating them as the invisibles. They are yet exploited, but they are invisibles to the French elites and to the French society. But the novel, and this is, I think, this is what I want to do while writing this book, is yet, yes, they are exploited by France. Yes, they are invisible to France. But I don't treat them as invisibles. I don't treat them as poor characters. They are extraordinary, full of life people. And the whole novel, I think, yes, it is sad, tragic, but at the same time, they, they do a lot of crazy things, full, full, full of life. France doesn't want them, but they impose themselves on France and on Paris. Yes, Paris doesn't allow us to go here and there, but in this place where we cannot be, we are, we already have roots and we, they construct something without the blessing of France or Parisians. Yeah. And they reach the level of dreaming in a place that doesn't accept them, mm. which is a place that a gay person understands and masters very well. Well, when you mention that your books are tragic, but so much else, it's funny because you, you mean you, if you just describe the plot of your books, whether they involve rape or prostitution or racism, it doesn't really capture the experience of reading any of them. I mean, the first words that come to mind when I think of reading your books is tenderness and love and openness and possibility. And I don't mean that in a naive way, but um, 
because all these other things that we've been talking about for the last two hours are all there and are, are very present. And there's a lot of pain and fear and loneliness, but the tone feels different than that. Somehow the tone, the, the note that you stri strike. It's like in real life, like you, when you, you are struck in your heart, you have like <laughs> something bad happened to you. You, you, I don't know, you, you scream, you cry during 15 minutes and then you don't know, you put Nicki Minaj and you dance to it. It doesn't, <laughs> <laughs> I am not depressed all day long. I'm depressed, I don't know, at 10 a.m. and, uh, at 12 at noon, I, I am with Nicki Minaj and then I am depressed again at 4 p.m. And here we go. So, uh, yeah, life, li life has much more possibilities for us than we think of. And I want this to be in my novel. I don't want like to, to have like, uh, again, I don't want to be, I, I hope I succeed in this to have my characters defined only with one dimension. I, don't, I want them to be alive, alive. When you watch Jen Kelly dancing, yeah. like until today, you, you like sometimes this is, I spend some, like the whole day doing only this, watching Jen Kelly dancing on YouTube or, <laughs> or one of my favorite thing, it's uh, Fred Astaire and Rita Hayward when they dance and sing I'm um, old fashioned. I don't know if you know this song. It's sublime. Yeah. So you are, you cry and then you finish crying and you watch Fred Astaire and Rita Hayward. This yeah. is <laughs> this combination of the two things while talking about colonialism, post-colonialism, racism. Yeah. It, it, this important issues has to be brought, I hope, in a very live way and in an expected way. Like I, uh, last week, I put on my, 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 my Facebook that I love Instagram, so, uh, that I love uh, Nicki Minaj. And so many people were surprised. Oh, he loves Nicki Minaj. Like, like oh, how come a writer? Like, they were, and I realized that I find Nicki Minaj extremely talented, extremely flamboyant, extremely American and non-American yeah. at the same time. I find her, the way she uses the voices, the way she dances, the way she transforms her bodies, she is, and she writes, Nicki Minaj writes her own uh, songs. And, uh, but some people were disappointed with a Moroccan writer like me, uh, giving, uh, praising uh, Nicki Minaj. It's, I am disappointed on these people, disappointed in me because of <laughs> Nicki Minaj. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as we're coming closer to an end, I wanted to ask you about one last thing about the shapes of your books, because even though your books are full of stories told by one person to another or conversations between a character and their ancestor or a character and their former self or conversations happening in the realm of dreams or the imagination or perhaps of a possession even though your books are full of stories, your books are never shaped like stories. They don't have traditional story arcs. The characters don't arrive at a place of resolution. Nothing is linear. And there really is no ending. It's not like it just stops. I don't feel like the books stop. But 
I was curious if you could talk about that, about story, shape, and endings also. I told you I love I love knives. So I'm <laughs> I am just new you just kinda, knife. Yeah. I, I cut like it's like in cinema, you have the editing is very important. And sometimes you have to cut the scene in in not to finish the scene. You have just to cut. You have to be yeah. yeah. And I also told you as well earlier that I, I, before writing, I choose extremely very carefully the moment, the teeny tiny moment I am going to write about in this chapter and this chapter. And for me, it's the combination, uh, the, 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 the six juxtaposition mm-hmm. of these moments that makes a book uh, for me. Uh, I, I I just love the, the, the yeah to cut again it's yeah. it's not not, uh, not to give it all it's like when you have in sex it's impossible to give it all or at least you have to to give the other person that you are not giving him all otherwise he will leave you and nothing else will happen or it will be only repetition of the act of sex or the act of love you always have to, I don't know. And I have to admit that these things, I learned it when, again, I was a little boy. In, like in real life, I had to, to be way ahead of a certain people to know, to sense the danger before even they have it in their mind. Mm. So you have to say something in order to change the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole situation. And again, uh, or uh, you, you said that my, fr- my French is poor, and it's true. I do really feel that I am poor in, in, in French language. I, yes, I studied uh, big French literature, but I somehow it didn't stuck in my mind. What is in my mind is this idea that I have nothing and with nothing, I'm going to, to do something. It's like when many, many days I had with my mother and my sister when I was a little boy, you wake up and there is nothing to eat and for the whole day. So what are we going to do? Because you have to eat in order to survive. Yeah. You, you wake up and you have nothing. So from that nothing, you have to invent something. So I just feel that this is... Uh, this is a good strategy of writing good literature. <laughs> well, I don't want to misquote Emma, and I may be misquoting her, but when I was listening, I think I remember her saying, she never calls your French poor, but I think she she comes closer to calling it perhaps naked or bare um, in a way that is hard for her as a translator than uh, a more ornate, referential French because she has to get every, she has to get the emotional valence of every word right because it's, it's stripped down to a certain essence. I don't know if that sounds like something true to you and I may be misspeaking for her, but. No, no, this is totally true because this is my style. Like I have a a teeny tiny phrases, like some phrases, it's only one word. Like sometimes one the whole paragraph is one word like i like this idea of um i don't know it's like 
when you go sometimes for a retreat, uh, you retreat, so you just leave what is what you don't need. Yeah. You output, I don't know, the bone. I love this idea. While, <laughs> while writing about the blood and the sperm and the, the dirtiness, I only put it, only put there the bones, the dryness. I, 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 it has not to be, yeah. But again, this, this thing uh, at the beginning, I didn't think about it that much. It just came out naturally out of me because I was coming from a, 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 a circumstances where I was told that you are poor, you are going to stay poor all your life. And even you speaking in French is poor. And when I first started to be published, the Moroccan, some Moroccan reviewers were saying that my French is poor, mm. that the way I write is I don't, they were saying I don't have any vocabularies. They are not impressed with like this. And thus, I am not a good writer. But me hearing this, I just remember some people I used to watch on Moroccan TV and I was not impressed with their fancy words, too much complicated words that meant anything. It just meant that they were trying to impose on us their power by using French. Yes. I hope that my poor French, my poor words, at least give... Uh, the people, the readers, some emotions. That's the, that's all I want. It feels like it's a grand victory, Abdella. It must feel amazing that you um, have succeeded on the level of language and on the level of story and self or on your own terms that way. Well, it's not a success story the way it is told, but uh, I am happy I stayed faithful uh, to my mother uh, and what uh, like uh, my mother was speaking poor she was poor everything was all in her she and and and, and i saw the people who they were directed to her so but yet through that self poor self she was she constructed a lot of things um so that's why in my letter to her i say to her you are my simon de beauvoir like, why do I need to go to Simone de Beauvoir? Yes, I go to it when I study in university, when I read. But when I write, it's, it's only her. It's a good mother, dictator, merciless heart, <laughs> tender, <laughs> screaming nonstop, uh, <laughs> heartless, um, a good sorcerer, a bad sorcerer a good human being, a very bad human being, all that. And I think literature has to be this. Well, it was such an immense pleasure to spend all this time with you, Abdella. Um, thank you so much for um, talking with me today. Well, thank you very much, David, for the invitation. And I hope uh, it will make uh, some sense for the people who will hear us. I'm sure it will. I send you all my love and all my salam. We've been talking today to Abdella Taya about his latest book, A Country for Dying, from Seven Stories Press, translated by Emma Ramadan. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. 
Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office of me, David Naiman. To find out the latest about Abdel Ataya, you can follow him both on Facebook and Instagram. Today's bonus audio archive, an hour-long in-depth conversation with award-winning translator Emma Ramadan, joins many other long-form conversations with translators in the bonus archive, from Sophie Hughes, the translator of Fernanda Melchor, to Ellen Elias Bursich, the translator of Dubravka Ugresic, as well as bonus material from everyone from Phil Metris to Anif Abdurraqib to Garth Greenwell. To find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio or about the many other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter of the show, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. In addition to Seven Stories Press, I'd like to thank Semiotext for providing copies of Abdella's first books in English. I'd also like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.